So I'm anticipating that, you know, he's probably listening. <laughs> Voldemort. No. Um, and so, hey. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> uh, maybe it's a hate listen. I don't know. Uh, just to see what I might say. And, you know, I I recognize that and I'm, I'm nervous about being on the show. Uh, but I know that, you know, I actually heard from a very prominent person in journalism and she DM'd me saying, don't let this define you. And I never dreamed of letting this define me, what happened with Real Talk, because my journalism career and my career was very viable and successful and respected prior to Real Talk. And it will be, and it will be, continue to be um, post Real Talk. Um, I was not made by that show. Um, I am who I am predating that show. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I almost feel like I don't want to talk about it at all because I don't want to encourage folks to go check out a show that um, I can't stand behind. Oh, I don't think you have to worry about that with this. <laughs> Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. Recording today here in Amiskwachewa Skygun, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is the amazing Sarah Hoyles. Sarah has been a journalist and a broadcaster for more than a, de- more than a decade. She has produced and hosted with CBC as well as CKUA, and uh, is also a, a fellow podcaster. She's also the host of Makeout Mixtape on CGSR every Tuesday at 6 p.m. And Sarah, thanks for coming on the pod. I'm so happy to speak with you. Yeah, it's great to be here. How uh, are you doing, you know, given the the circumstances? Uh, You know, Jason Kenney has resigned, but nothing has changed. (laughs) (laughs) The pandemic is not over, but everyone is acting like it is. How are you doing? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I, I think you summed it up really nicely. The pandemic is not over, despite what people want <laughs> desperately. I mean, the, the pandemic's not done with us, I guess I should say. And Kenny, I mean, I'm kind of, I feel good about it because, you know, with the NDP and who would be an, the next option or the only option really in the province to be other than the UCP, when they're campaigning, when the NDP are campaigning, the idea is, you know, not Kenny, vote against Kenny, because we know that lots of people always spout off the thing that Albertans don't like, uh, just like to vote for things that they don't want. They like to vote against things. So with Kenny still there, I think it actually does the NDP a favor. Um, whether or not that he sticks there or when the, you know, leadership uh, <laughs> uh competition goes into full swing uh you know that remains to be seen yeah and before we get into the discussion that i know a lot of people want us to get to i know uh i, I there is some some news of the day bullshit that i just have to talk to you about so I, <laughs> I hope you're uh you know i hope you're okay with it and and you know let's start with kenny because what the fuck is he doing he is walking around doing 
press conferences, like absolute nothing burger press conferences where it's like, we're going to build a building here. Like, bro, like you resigned. Like, what are you doing in front of media? Like hitting your talking points about how bad Ottawa is. Like, are we all supposed to just pretend that he didn't resign? I, I don't understand the strategy. I, I really don't, but I like it. <laughs> Cause I think it does, you know, the, the UCP can't claim that, you know, own new leadership. Uh, they're still under the same dude. They're still under the same guy. Um, and you know, the, still the very hateful policies that they are spouting off about, like, you know, with the opioid crisis and what's the legal not legalization, the decriminalization in the, in BC for illicit drugs. Um, yeah, there's still lots of hate being spewed. So I just, I think consistency works in our favor for the folks that don't want to see the UCP continue. Like Kenny is still doing his radio show, you know, like his little Saturday morning, <laughs> like what kind of, per- like what kind of person does this? Like Kenny is, you know, literally George Costanza from that Seinfeld episode where he like quit and then tried to come back. But like, the, the the difference here is that Kenny is using his, you know, incredible power <laughs> to use, a, you know, both Kenny and George Costanza, I think, have a fundamental dislike of humanity. The thing is, is that George Costanza is like a fictional character, whereas Jason Kenny has the ability and has, you know, killed and harmed thousands of people. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. what the fuck? Like, you lost. Like, the people, your own party didn't want you. The party you created hates you so much that only... 51% of people wanted to keep you on. It It is wild. And and I'm glad you brought up the decriminalization stuff because, yes, just the other day, uh, the province of British Columbia decriminalized small amounts of drugs, which is, it's not great policy, actually. Like two and a half grams is actually quite small. Uh, yeah. You know, this, this took far too long to actually get done. Uh, but it is a small step in the right direction. And Kenny... He, the man had like prepared notes and like torqued stats about all of this. Like he, he, uh, he put out a statement, you know, through the official communication channels of the premier at 5.46 PM, like before a, a hockey game, like before, before a freaking like playoff game with the Oilers. Like, what is he thinking? Oh boy, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. The threshold is is very, very low. British Columbia actually wanted a threshold of 4.5 grams. They actually asked for that in November. And so to look at it, that is such a small amount that people that, you know, fear arrest or losing employment, like, or housing or custody of their children, um, they, because the, like, that prevents them from wanting to access or being able to access harm reduction or health supports or even telling their friends and family. So that low threshold 2.5 is, is a step in the right direction. I feel as far as harm reduction is concerned, but um, it's, I think we could have taken a bigger step. And I just think it's rich that uh, the, the idea that Alberta and Alberta politicians and the Alberta premier um <laughs> is telling wants to tell another province what to do when yeah. you know they keep they keep spouting off and taking the federal uh government to court 
to say hands off Alberta. You don't get to tell us what to do. It just, it's, it, the hypocrisy is thick. Yeah, that, I definitely want to get to that point about like, you know, him and his underlings were complaining about how they weren't consulted about the decision, which is, of course, yeah. on its face absurd. But like, Kenny is still, uh, like, one thing that Kenny and, and even like police chiefs, like the, the Alberta Association of Police Chiefs, Dale McPhee and Mark Newfeld in Calgary, like one of the things that they talk about is like, oh, well, you don't need to decriminalize drugs because there's already de facto decriminalization. Like we're not charging people with simple possession. And it's like, well, then why do you care so much if it fucking become if the de facto decriminalization decriminalization becomes real life decriminalization? I don't I mean, I understand why they're doing it, but it is it is fundamentally incoherent, right? Agreed. I, I really just feel, you know, they, they need something to do. Uh, they need someone to serve and protect against. Um, I, I don't think it's a good use of, of attention, focus, time, resources, et cetera, et cetera. There is a uh, department in the kind of New York City uh, Police Department uh, kind of an unofficial department called the like the rubber room squad. I, I could be butchering that, but it's essentially, it's like cops who aren't allowed to do anything. Um, <laughs> like be, be, because of like all of the, because they fucked up too much, but like you can't fire them because like, obviously oh, cause the unions, yeah, the unions are and, way and it, too strong. Yeah. <laughs> cop unions are incredibly powerful and, and it's like almost impossible to fire cops. But if you fuck up enough of a cop, essentially, essentially you get like designated to the, like the rubber room squad where you're like not allowed to carry a gun. You're not allowed to like really do anything. And I feel like we need that. But for Jason Kenny, where he's like, he can still like pretend to be premier, but as like, as long as he doesn't fucking do anything. Sure. I guess, <laughs> you know, like he needs Let's his just own. Don't touch anything. Don't, off. don't touch anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that would be, and that, that would be lovely, but um, I think we all know that his, um, I don't know. Maybe just a simple word such as ego. Uh, I don't think that his ego would would allow him to to stand still, um, to not move, to take insights and perspectives from other people, um, to you know even heed research uh, and scientific data based information around what harm reduction and um, community services and programs actually do for poverty reduction and crime reduction. Yeah. And not only was Kenny kind of like wading into BCD crim for some reason, but like his, his like underlings, you know, the justice minister, Tyler Shandro, everyone's kind of like favorite Lego man and uh, associate minister, I think of mental health and addictions is official title, Mike Ellis. They were in Edmonton yesterday doing a presser uh for something I don't know, not not important but like they too <laughs> they too decided to get on their hind legs and uh talk about you know this this uh this move towards decriminalization in bc i'm just gonna play you this like 90 second clip because it's like it's fucking hilarious one second my reaction um my reaction would be there's no evidence uh, to support that that is an effective uh, policy um, I am extremely uh, disappointed um, why the federal government uh, would you know this I mean this is a cultural shift when you do when you do something like this there was no there was no 
engagement with the um, with the citizens of Canada. Uh, I'm not aware of any engagement with uh, the people of British Columbia. I mean, this sort of thing is is an absolutely a, a cultural shift. And if you talk about, and I've spoken this before, when you talk about places such as Portugal as an example that went forward with the with decriminalization as an example, there was extensive consultation with the citizens of Portugal. Like, this was not something that was done through the stroke of the pen. Um, I question, you know, um, you know, is this is this something, why did the federal government not bring this up at the ballot box? As the um, uh, Solicitor General of the province, I have concerns with many of our small urban and, and rural communities that border with uh, British Columbia. Uh, this is potentially going to increase a buyer's market. There's going to be, um, I think, um, it's going to be a significant impact on our bordering communities. And uh, I think that should be a concern for all Albertans. Uh, so that, that's one. I don't know. Won't someone please think of the, the poor people of, of field Alberta and the fact that they are field BC, I guess, and uh, the neighboring people just over the border that they're going to be able to carry around two and a half grams worth of drugs and not be arrested. <laughs> like what the fuck? Are they worried? Maybe they're worried about, you know, the job creators. Maybe they're worried that, you know, those jobs are now going to be in BC. So where, <laughs> like, is that what we're worried about? Come on, guys. I don't know. These, these two guys are, are absolute Muppets and an embarrassment to Alberta. And it's like, can you imagine, like, the, the consultation part is the, like, the most hilarious to me. But I, I do want to take a, just a minute to talk about decriminalization, about small amount of drugs. Because, like, it, it is, like, a positive step. Um, it's not a silver bullet or like a, a one-stop solution to the opioid poisoning epidemic. It's really just an acknowledgement that the like the law enforcement approach to dealing with this health crisis has failed miserably. And it's mostly just like a dignity and respect thing for people who use drugs, like taking the ability away from cops to just like snatch drugs away and take their paraphernalia and threaten them with arrest. Like th- that is... Uh, again, just like a fundamental dignity and respect thing. And that's, I think, why you see such a strong reaction from Kenny and Chandro and Ellis, because it's like, well, no, we, why would we treat people who use drugs with dignity and respect? Like, that's not what we fucking do, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the war on drugs has failed. It has failed everywhere. <laughs> and... So we need to move on from that. We need to move away from that. And we need to look at it as a part of a much bigger picture. And that drug use, addiction, um, what have you, stems from bigger issues and larger problems. And so, and it is around stigma it's also around social services, what's available to folks. And by eliminating and, and shoehorning and, and forcing people to only have access to like recovery programs is not meeting people where they're at. Maybe that's where someone will get eventually, but maybe not. And we need to mm-hmm. stop being um, so prescriptive around what it means uh, or what's allowed because it actually just leaves people behind and then they are left to their own means and there are other consequences to that. So 
I just think it's about bringing everybody along and meeting people where they're at. It's, Mm -hmm. it's the most humane approach. Kenny has done a lot of damage in his time as premier. And I think one of the biggest, one of his biggest kind of like imprints on society is just how, how fucked up the opioid poisoning epidemic got under his watch and how he actively made it worse. Yeah. Um, He could have just not touched anything, right? Like he didn't have to do, he didn't have to further anything. He didn't have to put any more funding anywhere. He could have just left it alone. But he yeah. did the reverse. He yeah. did the opposite. He made it worse. That's Kenny's, Kenny's, yeah, legacy. He made it worse. Um, Not Sarah. according to Ronna Ambrose or to Stephen Harper. They just spouted off about how much change and progress was made. Well, he, yeah, he, did, he did cause a lot of damage uh, or progress, however you wanted to define it. But Sarah, I, I think we've gotten the, the the news of the day itch out that I wanted to get out this BC decrim thing and their government Alberta the government of Alberta setting their hair on fire about it I think is like okay I got to talk about this with Sarah but the the reason why you know I wanted you on and the reason why I think people are listening right now is you know people know you as you know the person who stood up to you know a bad boss you know walked out on them quite dramatically in the middle of a live taping of their show. But, you know, one of the reasons why I want to chat with you is that like, you are more than just like that one, you know, very viewed social media incident, right? You are a journalist and a broadcaster who has worked in this field for what, like 10, 15 years now? Like when, what, how long have you been working in the field? Well, I got my journalism degree out on the East Coast at Dalhousie University. It's called University of King's College. It's on the same campus. Um, I got that back in, what, 2006? And then from there, I went and I worked in the CBC newsroom in Moncton, New Brunswick. My first job was a daily news reporter. And then from there, I bipped and bopped, um, taking the different contracts. Um, It was kind of like it was a really great way for me to uh, see the country and the world, ultimately, by taking different contracts. I guess I'm just, I'm finding, I'm putting my rose-colored glasses on, you know, the state of journalism and knowing that, you know, full-time permanent gigs don't really exist anymore. The golden era of like legit, strong, permanent jobs does not exist anymore. It's freelance or bust. And so I just basically use that to my advantage. And I've, I've worked, yeah, with, as you mentioned, uh, with CBC at a different, uh, many different plants in Winnipeg. I worked in Edmonton, CBC, and then I also worked at CKUA for a number of years. And then I've kind of switched gears and gone to consulting and helping folks do media relations and deal with the media because I know how to be in the media and then how to deal with them. So yeah, that's kind of been my trajectory. And you you got your journalism degree out on the East Coast, but are you, you're from, where are you from? Oh, born and raised Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, but I swore up and down. That, I, that I, the moment I could get out of here, I was gone, and I was never, ever coming back. Um, <laughs> but this place just was never—it's just not done with me. So I, you know, now I, I live here. I very much have a home, and my family is here. Um, and I think it's just kind of like I fell in love with the place. Um, I think it's not an obvious place. Some. Some of my friends in Toronto are just kind of like, what? Why are you? They actually have asked me, like, why are you still in Edmonton? And 
I tell them like, it's not an obvious place. And that's what I like about it. There's a lot going on. First glance, first blush, maybe you don't see it. But if you stick around and you get to know folks, it's a really um, engaging place. It's a really, such like catchphrasey terms, like it's such a vibrant place, but it is. Um, I love it here. Mm -hmm. And so what what pushed you into journalism? Why did you decide to... uh get into this field that is, you know, full of rich, successful, loved uh, people. (laughs) It's so hokey. And I'm going to sound like every little upstart journalism student or wannabe journalist. It's like, I want to tell stories. I want to be a storyteller. Um, And yes, I do. Um, But I, I really wanted to go and do documentary film and in order to do that I had to go through two other sessions for the degree and then I ended up you know just kind of like well I want some hard skills so I decided to do the radio workshop and that blew my hair back and I just fell in love with um, the medium because it allows you with television you always have to have you know wallpaper you have to have the viz, the visuals to tell a story. If you don't have it, you can't tell the story. And so it kind of hamstrings people um, into what they can tell and where they can go and what stories they can share. And radio blows that wide open and says, you want to go to space? Sure. You want to go to 5,000 years ago? Absolutely. You want to go to the deep sea? You got it. And you you can go there. And you can take the listeners there. And so for me, I realized that I wanted to, I I really enjoy longer form journalism. That takes a lot of time and resources. So it's not something that is done a lot of these days. It's kind of like that golden era of, of, when I think of it, CBC and even the National Film Board of Canada, where there could be this exploratory longer form uh, pieces. And that's I kind of felt like I needed to do day-to-day, daily grind, daily news in my uh, work hours. And then I was going to try to work off the side of my desk and do kind of passion projects. Um, some of the times that's worked, sometimes it hasn't. Cool. So I have to ask you about, you know, your time on, you know, Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. And I know Sorry, this what's, is the first... uh, what's that? I'm not sure what uh, that never, is. Never heard of her. Don't know her. <laughs> and uh and i know this is the first time you've kind of really recorded your thoughts uh you know on the record since you walked off the job but we we were chatting before the pod and and you were saying that you had reservations about you know working uh you know for real talk before you even started didn't you i did and i checked in with folks that i trust very much and um I mean, when you look at the media landscape, when you look at the journalism landscape, even more specifically, what opportunities are there? They're few and far between. And are they well-paying? Are they secure? Are they stable? And also, whose voice gets listened to? Who gets the opportunity to host a show? In my experience as a woman, it's it's more challenging. And I think when I spoke about some of the issues, 
there are a lot of white dudes with podcasts <laughs> and there's more by the minute. So, uh, and some people took issue with me saying that for sure. But um, I just was, there wasn't, there hasn't been opportunity uh, for me. I mean, if a woman heads up a show, usually it's considered like a woman's issues show. And if, um, if a person of color or a black person, indigenous, like, then it becomes, you know, special, special interest, special interest group um, focus. And so I just, I saw the limitations and what um, opportunities were available to me. And I thought that by joining that team, I knew that there were shortcomings, but I thought I could manage. I really did. And that was naive of me. Um, I thought, I thought I, I would be able to, um, as the editorial producer, help to focus and guide. Um, but the personal cost was enormous. And I'm not interested in, you know, prosecuting the kind of minutia of what happened, you know, like, you know, at the end of the day, your boss decided to made a choice and decided to not stand up for you and side with some random TikToker. Uh, but I do have to say that what you did was incredibly brave and it's hard to do what you did. And I want to commend you for, again, like it's never easy to stand up to your boss and especially in the context of like a media landscape where there's not a lot of jobs and doing it in a very public fashion is very difficult. So I suppose my, my kind of follow-up question is like, what do you want, you know, the public to know about, you know, your time working on Real Talk and, and why you left? Hmm. That's a really big question. Um, I will say that, well, I, I wasn't sure if I should talk about it because ultimately uh, the discourse that's been swirling around this and just the speculation has been uh, wild. And there were people that said that I did it for notoriety. Um, that you did it for the clout? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, I mean, the tropes were definitely thrown around. A lot of them that I got uh, included that I was uh, too sensitive. I was emotional. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't handle the heat. Um, I couldn't handle the pressure. I was uh, mentally not well. Uh, I mean, just all the tropes that are used um, to try to diminish and discount when women speak about issues, um, things that, uh, that are of legitimate concern to them. So I want to start there. Um, so yeah, I I have reservations about talking about it because it just, it gets weaponized. 
Well, why don't I, I've got my own kind of little anecdote about, you know, conflict with Jesperson. So like, let me just, let me tell it. And maybe there's a, a riff on there. There's something you can pull out of it. But, you know, I know people kind of want the podcast wars to roar back to life. And, you know, it's probably not the biggest news out there that I am not the biggest Ryan Jesperson fan. Uh, you know, he tried to get my colleague, Jim Story, in trouble, um, you know, after Jim quite rightly roasted Ryan for hosting a screening of Vivian Krause's documentary. And after I stood behind Jim, he like didn't have me on his show anymore, you know, was talking shit about me. I think he was still at, at Chet at the time. And let's be real for a second. Like Jim's criticism of Ryan was incredibly correct. Like Ryan lending his name to Vivian Krause, like come the fuck on. Like she's the government spent years and millions of dollars investigating her, uh, her, what her claims and, you know, not a speck of wrongdoing was found, but you know, the reason I bring that up is because it, it, it's part of a pattern of behavior with Ryan. Like he, he does not seem to be able to kind of take and internalize criticism everything is kind of like attack, attack, attack. Well, there's so much that I want to say, but also feel like I can't. And I, I also, or that I shouldn't, or that I'll just line myself up for more of the same. Because I really had hoped that there would be some accountability, but what I saw is just uh, a closing of the ranks and people saying, you know, it's this one time and... It's just one person. It's not me. And they, it's been, it's been really hard to see. I don't know, Duncan. Um, no, it's in your, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, right? Like it's incredibly rare for like well-known white guys to get canceled. Right. And, and not that that's what you were looking for, but he, there was a closing of the ranks and you know, he, he did not face any consequences. He did not seem to learn anything from the incident with you. And I get why you're reluctant to talk about it again. Like you're, you're putting yourself out there and you know, you got treated like shit, uh, you know, very publicly over standing up for yourself, which is so fucking bizarre. I mean, the, the, the thing is about that is I tried everything. I tried everything to, avert what ended up happening in the, in mid-March. I tried to internally within the organization because this is a pattern of behavior. I can only speak and will only speak about my experience, but this is a pattern of behavior that predates me. And I tried to address it and use the proper channels to address it. So there could be growth and there could be change and, and I could stay there. I saw it. I took immense pride in my work and knowing that the audience there is, I mean, we can pretend all we want that it's left leaning on that show. It's not. <laughs> um, I, I personally think that it's, it's a big game of pretend, you know, that progressives, I hate that term, but I'll use it because it's just what, pe in, it's what people use. Mm -hmm. But progressives are 
you know, wanting to have that champion and wanting him to be one of them and a part of them. And so there's been a lot of turning a blind eye to some pretty blatant indicators that he is not an ally and he is not safe. And so I, I, I tried everything. I put stuff in writing. I put in requests asking for change. And this is before March, 2022. Mm -hmm. And it was, and even, cause it spanned over two days, what was very public. I think that's one of the things that's most incredible is that it was caught on tape and it is there for everyone to see. And yet people discount it and say that it was a one-off and it's not, it's not problematic and that they're willing to look past it. Um, and that's the thing about, um, why people like this get to continue to hurt people is because of the communities and the other folks around them that enable it to continue. And I think that's what's been very challenging to watch is that funders, guests, I mean, I don't knock the people that don't know, like if you don't know, you don't know, but if you, understand and you maybe even witnessed it watched it and you still align yourself yeah like hasn't Supriya Devetti been on the show like uh, since you walked off pretty sure she has new uh, as far as I know numerous times and that to me is just I mean I also know that you know people have a book to launch or they have their brand that they want to continue to get out there um, but this is what I'm, I'm, what I'm finding. It's just, people are really showing their, their true colors. Um, and I just, I, I caution folks against that because it sends a very clear message that, um, you're not safe. You are, you're willing to put, <laughs> uh, your notoriety. I don't know. Like I, that's why I just, I don't necessarily feel like I, I like, I'm not built for the media. I'm really not. Let's, let's talk about, you know, the opportunities for journalists and like the state of local independent media in Alberta, right? Like it is uh, incredibly difficult for new, you know, independent outlets that are not associated with a major media brand or some level of government or some weird, uh, you know, industrial concern to get off the ground, right? Like, it seems like you, you do, it's not even like, it seems like you do need a benefactor to get off the ground, whether it's a foundation or a rich guy or a bunch of advertisers, uh, you know, organized labor. I, I mean, I think, what independent media, like let's, let's take an example, like Canada land, right? Mm -hmm. Huge, uh, lots of support from its audience. Their, their audience kicks in significant part of that organization's revenue, but it's not all of it. It's not a hundred percent reader supported. 
and you know they've partnered with foundations they've got like weird investments they they have advertisements like we don't have advertisements you know you will never find bitcoin well as a sponsor of the <laughs> progress report don't say that beep that out don't give them yeah. don't give <laughs> <laughs> well yeah fair enough but like um like indies that don't do ads like non like us you know we need way more audience buy-in than kind of other outlets but it's still incredibly hard right like the the major players the entrenched media players command so much airspace have such a larger platform and you're starting from scratch like it's just so difficult to get off the ground i think that's fair to say but i actually would zoom out further um and maybe this is me just sounding super idealistic um but when i think about journalism so if i'm speaking journalism i do not see journalism and media as interchangeable i see them as i i could see that journalism could fit and slot underneath media but not all media is journalism (laughs) there's lots of infotainment out there um so there's that and the idealistic part that i was going to mention is the idea that journalism is fundamental to a functioning democracy and there are principles of and ethics of effective journalism. And so I truly believe that um, non-commercial ventures in journalism are essential because when we get advertisers in there, when we get money in there that is, uh, has special interests, it skews we don't have to look very far you look at fox like we know we know what bent they're coming from i mean and if we're looking more locally we look at global we look at ctv we look at city they are commercial television they their newscasts have sponsors and well they only employ a handful of journalists and they're not really and then they're not they're not not they're not really they are not in explicitly not in the business of like public interest accountability journalism like no one from you know global is going to be writing about how the chamber of commerce avoided paying one hundred fifty thousand dollars in taxes right uh, like a story that we just broke like last week yeah that's um, not that's that's not going to happen <laughs> so i i i just i worry about the splintering and so, yes, it is concerning that Post Media and their columnists are spewing hatred and intolerance and out-and-out lies. Um, but I, I just feel like that the splintering is not actually doing us, the greater us, the big, like, uh, Albertans. The people. The, the people. Um, any favors. It's about, and I'm not talking about consolidation. Like to me, I'm not, I don't have solutions. I'm sorry. Like I'm not, I, I just, I'm seeing the splintering and the factions and camps showing up um, and taking shape. And I truly believe that the CBC is, is essential because it is, it is, it is publicly funded. 
that is essential. And I, but I also know that it has bias as well. Um, well, and it's built on the exploitation of journalists, right? Like the temporary short-term contract hustle that so many journalists get caught up in working for the CBC is so kind of fundamentally exploitative. And I correct. assume you have firsthand experience with that, right? Correct. So it's, so there's, man, am I saying the the quiet stuff out loud? <laughs> I, uh, yes, that is uh, many people's experience. Like, Previously, the CBC, when it was very well funded, um, was a very stable place to work. It's over the years, it's, um, it hasn't been able to maintain that. And so to me, I mean, I know that there's the, the goal is to be objective, but as humans, we are fallible and we have subjectivity. We just, we do. And so you can always aim for that. And I just, I try to access forms of media that um, strive for objectivity. Strive is the operative word. Um, but I also make sure that I am accessing a variety of sources. So in my, like my morning routine is to listen to the BBC, NPR, CBC, and Al Jazeera and listen to their newscasts. And it's really interesting to listen to what is covered how it's covered, what similarities there are, the differences, but also things that aren't picked up by the different um, different outlets. And that allows me, it's not that I'm cynical, it's that I'm critical. I think it's important to be very critical of what forms of media I'm exposing myself to and making sure that I, I don't just hand over my trust willy-nilly. Yeah, and like I'm glad you brought up post media because like I read post media post media stories. Like they have great reporters, uh, kind of doing hard news coverage, but that company is like just so fundamentally evil with this kind of sclerotic columnist managerial editorial class that just kind of like sits over top of and sucks all the value off of that's created by you know these young, usually very good, hardworking journalists who cover their beats incredibly well. But like you can only stay for so long at those positions until you move on because like one, there's like there's no columnist or managerial or editorial gigs for you because like you're in your you know twenties. Yeah. And and they just don't want you either. Like they're set up. You know, they pulled up the ladder behind them. Precisely. And, and you know, the star these days is like tweeting the star Edmonton. <laughs> Twitter account is like tweeting baseball scores and wire copy into my feed, like Ava Bend in Alberta. Like, I think we've kind of gone through all of the, the media outlets that, that operate here, you know, like it's, it's a, uh, it's dire for media workers. It's bad for media consumers. And, um, you know, not that this has been a whole, uh, you know, 40 minute excuse to, ask people for money but like you know if you like if you've listened to all of this and you know that you you agree with or that you like the stuff that we produce and the way we hold powerful people to account give us money or give money to another independent media outlet right like it's it is as you said fundamental to like a functioning society and it is so dire right now yeah looking at the like inventory of journalists, especially with post media. I mean, the the ones that are really promising, they shift over and have, I mean, I just feel like it's just been this 
um, conga line over to a Globe and Mail. Like they just, it seems to be where... Or or the CBC, right? Janet French, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I don't blame them. Like there's... Oh, no. You have to take, you have to take, you, (laughs) you have to take what you can get, but then you also need to see what, what else is out there. Um, but you, you have to start somewhere. And when you say that, you know, because of the way the media landscape is, it's hard for journalists. Um, it's also what it ends up doing is makes it really hard for just everyday folks to make sense of what's going on. Um, it's really important that there are uh, outlets that, that can be trusted and that have integrity at their core. Uh, where those are, uh, they're, they're fewer and far between. But, um, but again, I think it's about being, you can listen to, like I can listen to all kinds of stuff. I just need to always listen with a very critical ear um, and not take things at face value. Sarah, I want to say I really appreciate you coming on the show to, to talk to talk to me. Uh, I know it wasn't easy. Uh, and in that vein of like, you know, support your local journalists, like how can people follow along with the work that you're doing? Uh, you know, now is the time to kind of uh, plug uh, your pluggables. That's really interesting. I'm so not about plugging my stuff. I always just want my work to speak for itself. So this is so uncomfortable. Um, I guess I could talk about you know, No Period Without, which is an organization which deals with uh, period poverty in Edmonton. Ultimately, you know, having products for menstruation is, it costs money. And if you don't have access to those kinds of resources, um, your period's still coming. (laughs) So the organization is you know, finding ways to to get donations and fundraising and get menstruation products to those in need. And yeah, but there's, a bit, there's a news note on that too, which is by the middle of the month, uh, City of Edmonton is supposed to have free menstruation products in all of its uh, public bathrooms that it operates. So FYI, uh, yeah. which is a policy that no period without pushed for, I believe. Yes, definitely. Um, Scarlett is the one that is really leading on this, and she's the one that started No Period Without. So she's really the one that's been um, having those conversations. I'm I'm in the supporting cast, kind of the place I like to be. And yeah, it's ultimately about making sure that, that people, I mean, words that you used earlier, dignity and respect, um, and being able to live with dignity uh, and have what you need, not having more than what you need, just, just what you need. Mm-hmm. Well, now's your last chance to play anything, but, Oh uh, my gosh. Oh, the pressure. Um, I don't know. There's, <laughs> I assume you're on Twitter. Follow, follow Sarah on Twitter. Oh, sure. Follow, follow me on Twitter. Sarah Hoyles, um, at Sarah Hoyles, uh, make out mixtape, make out mixtape. Yeah. Okay. So this show is, it's a funny little creature. Um, it's a show about sex positivity and consent because that's important and i like to say that it's it's all music it's not like i'm i'm spouting off about anything um it's it's, not sex with sarah like sex with sue or whatever no it's not sue johansson's sunday night sex talk no i wish that's that is definitely the pinnacle um no it's just meant to be it's a fun music i'm gonna do that again it's a mix of music 
wall-to-wall music and it builds to a crescendo, a climax, if you will, um, in the show through music. And then there are examples of how to give and receive uh, consent. Uh, and basically saying like masturbation is a-okay folks get at her get her done and uh, also make sure that if you are making out with somebody that it's consensual and so it's all about like showing instead of telling it's not heavy-handed it's fun and then yeah you just get to learn about different ways and examples you hear the examples of how to give consent and that's uh, Tuesdays at six, right? Tuesdays at six for an hour. I'm yeah, and I, I mix different music, so it's yeah, it's just this little baby project that I I've always wanted to do. I've talked about doing it forever, and just in the last year, I've I finally realized it. Um, yeah, I just like to create and let my work speak for itself. Brilliant, uh, folks. If you have any th- notes, thoughts, or comments, I am very easy to get a hold of. Uh, I am on Twitter also at Duncan Kinney. And you can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thank you to Jim Story for editing this podcast. Thank you to Cosmic Famu Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.